Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled NSCLC Therapy Management and Biomarker Testing is provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by educational funding provided by Amgen. This replay of a live broadcast focuses on newer therapies on the horizon for advanced or metastatic NSCLC patients with targetable mutations. Now, here's your moderator, Dr. Mark Sosinski. Hello, everybody, and welcome uh, to this um, activity today. Uh, if we can show the first slide, we will uh, see the title of the um, uh, program here. This is my uh, name and um, uh, title, Executive Medical Director of the Advent Health Cancer Institute in Orlando, Florida. Uh, next slide, please. Now, uh, during uh, this um, discussion, uh, this is just a disclaimer and disclosure that we may be um, discussing some off-label use of either approved or, or newer agents uh, that are in development. So if we do, we will certainly point that out. Next slide, please. These are my disclosures uh, for conflict of interest. Next slide, please. And the agenda for today is summarized here. We'll just overview um, some of the key oncogenic drivers. Uh, we'll run through the W's of molecular testing and why it's important, uh, what's new uh, in the area of targeted therapy. After frontline therapy, we're going to focus on that space uh, today. We've got a case study uh, to launch it with uh, some audience response questions, some key takeaways uh, that I'll summarize a Q&A session as well as the post-assessment questions. So that's the plan for the next hour. Uh, next slide, please. So the objectives are shown here, and upon completion, uh, the participants should be better able to identify and review key oncogenic drivers in non-small cell lung cancer, integrate guideline-recommended strategies for biomarker analysis, specifically in advanced stage disease. This is a process that we identify uh, efficacious targeted therapies evaluate the various biomarker testing uh, methodologies and diagnostic uh, assays. Uh, we'll uh, assess some new evidence for the newer targeted therapies and IO options uh, in, in these populations, and then um, apply some evidence-based biomarker-guided therapy uh, for advanced disease uh, based on the presence of the oncogenic uh, driver mutations. All right, next slide, please. So the overview, and we'll skip to the next slide, uh, which uh, kind of um, uh, paints the big picture of lung cancer. We know that lung cancer, in my opinion, is public uh, cancer enemy number one. Uh, it is the most common cancer in the world and most uh, responsible for the greatest number of cancer-related deaths. In fact, you can combine the deaths from the other th three big solid tumors, prostate, breast, and colorectal cancer and still not get uh, to the number of lung cancer deaths that we see worldwide. Uh, three people die every minute uh, from uh, lung cancer. Next slide. So we've seen quite a evolution, if you will, in terms of a disease that started in an era of kind of one size fits all uh, to a very heterogeneous disease that's genomically defined as well as defined by pdl one status nowadays. 
obviously the first big step years ago was differentiating non-small cell from small cell uh, because of its different behavior and management um, strategies. Uh, two drugs uh, forced us to uh, further subdivide the non-small cell into essentially squamous versus non-squamous. That was bevacizumab because of the risk of toxicity and pemetrexid uh, based on efficacy issues being uh, in, in, ineffective in squamous uh, uh, patients. So that drove that histological uh, distinction between uh, squamous and non-squamous. And then uh, almost 20 years ago in 2004, with the identification of EGFR mutations, uh, we've seen a number of driver mutations that have uh, really changed the standard of care in the first-line setting and really demand comprehensive genomic testing to identify the current five mutations and four fusions in which we have FDA-approved therapies for based on better efficacy uh, with targeted therapies versus standard chemotherapy uh, with or without IO therapy. So it's important to understand that this now has become a very heterogeneous disease and a disease that really is defined by uh, assessing the genomics uh, of the cancer. Next slide, please. And this kind of uh, uh, points that, that out. This is looking at the the pie diagram in non-squamous, uh, non-small cell lung cancer, we understand that most of non-squamous is adenocarcinoma. And I mentioned EGFR uh, at one point on the previous slide. And you can see to the left here that we've seen a number of either other mutations, things like HER2 mutations, MedExon 14 splice mutation, uh, BRAF mutations, and then the fusions that are noted there, ROS1, RET, um, ALK fusions um, uh, are important uh, to identify. And so this disease that looks like an adenocarcinoma under the microscope really meet, needs to be defined genomically um, to uh, really allow optimal management of this population of patients. Next slide. So here's here's the scorecard, if you will. And, and again, I've mentioned the uh, kind of five mutations and four um, uh, fusions that we uh, have shown here. And you can see that many of these, the majority of them actually have approved uh, therapies in the first line setting. Uh, three of them, the EGFR exon 20 insertions, KRAS G12C and HER2 positive uh, uh, disease are currently um, uh, to, uh, have targeted agents in the second line setting following platinum-based chemotherapy, of course, with or without IO or with or without anti-VEGF therapy in, in that setting. Um, uh, and obviously, after uh, ex, uh, exhaustion of the targeted therapy effect, uh, many of these patients are um, eligible to receive platinum-based chemotherapy uh, following uh, disease progression. So uh, again, you see in many of these boxes, there are a number of different choices. It's become quite complicated. Um, and it's nice to have options for this population of uh, patients. Uh, the bottom line is um, many of these drugs have fantastic activity, as I'll show you subsequently. And um, you can't use them unless you do the comprehensive genomic testing to identify the genomic alteration. Next slide, please. 
the W's of uh, why to test and, and, and how it affects uh, the guidance of treatment. Next slide, please. Well, who needs molecular testing? Um, every, it's the, the only issue is histology. Uh, we should not be using clinical factors. Uh, patients with non-squamous, non-small cell, or non-small cell not otherwise specified. Uh, this is from the NCCN clinical practice guidelines should be tested. Patients with squamous cell, if uh, they are a light smokers, never smokers, uh, if you have a small biopsy specimen or mixed histology, small biopsy specimens may be hard to make a histology call. So I would always err on the side of doing more testing versus less testing. Uh, and I find myself in my practice um, testing more and more squamous cells uh, based on some of these factors shown here on this slide. Next slide, please. Now, what uh, molecular targets uh, should you be testing for? And, and again, I would argue that anything that has an FDA-approved targeted therapy, that target should be evaluated at the time of diagnosis. You can see in stage four disease, the NCCN guidelines recommend the full panel of all 10 uh, biomarkers um, in these patients with adeno and considered for squamous cell. Broad panel testing is recommended where possible. I think we've passed the era of single gene testing. Uh, typically, the best broad panel, I'll show you a slide on this in a moment, is uh, next generation sequencing-based, optimally DNA-RNA-based. We do have an indication for osimertinib in the early-stage surgically resected population in those patients that have EGFR mutations. So certainly EGFR testing, I guess that's the one argument you could make for single gene testing, since there's only a single FDA approval at this point in this population of patients. Um, uh, but I think otherwise it's, it's the full panel in, in advanced stage disease. And here, another key point, um, you should know all the results of the molecular testing before you make an initial treatment decision. Um, sometimes that takes uh, uh, coaching the patients a little bit uh, to wait another week or uh, several days to, to get those results. Uh, I always say that the biggest impact we make in stage four non-small cell lung cancer is what we do first. You're not always guaranteed that you're going to get in second line, and therefore uh, you ought to make the best and, and proper choice, kind of following the paradigm of right treatment with the right patient at the right time. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's a take-home message there. Next slide, please. Uh, again, when to test, I kind of alluded to this. Uh, this should be at the time of diagnosis. Uh, you know, all of these 10 biomarkers in my mind are this equivalent to ERPR and HER2 in breast cancer. We, we, you know, we wouldn't make a treatment decision uh, in breast cancer without knowing that. Um, we should know it in stage four non-small cell lung cancer. I mentioned uh, the uh, testing of EGFR in the surgical patients. Um, and, and also, the, I think there is a role for retesting at the time of disease progression. We're beginning to learn a lot about the acquired resistance patterns for um, these targeted agents. And sometimes retesting at the time of disease progression can be informative in terms of what the subsequent treatment options may be for that particular patient. The other thing here um, uh, in, in, uh, about the time of disease progression 
is that sometimes uh, the clinical course is highly suggestive of histologic transformation. So rebiopsy to uh, define the histology is also important. So I'll just put that little tidbit in there. Um, uh, that, that's obviously a clinical judgment. Next slide. Which test to use as promised, I said I'd come back to this. So you can see here um, the various options, NGS, PCR, IHC, and FISH testing. Um, NGS optimally, uh, I think, is best as, uh, as, uh, as it's often uh, DNA and RNA-based. Not everyone is uh, RNA-equipped, uh, but you should, whoever you're using for testing, one should uh, ask that question. It does optimize the identification of fusions. Uh, PCR uh, does cover a lot of these, but is uh, dependent upon the primer, so may miss uh, some of these. This is uh, most evident in the EGFR exon 20 insertions where you will miss the majority of them uh, with PCR-based testing. Uh, IHC, uh, which is protein expression, um, uh, can have um, uh, some role, cer certainly in ALK and uh, um, ROS1, uh, there's uh, a role for it in that setting. Obviously, PDL1 is immunohistochemistry based, uh, so you're looking at protein expression. Um, and FISH does uh, historically has played a role, but I think um, that's a difficult uh, methodology. And even though it can have a role, I think it's uh, rather limited uh, at this time. Next slide, please. Uh, don't forget about plasma. Uh, you know, I think plasma and tissue are complementary. Uh, in my practice, I, in the vast majority of patients, I do both. Um, I saw kind of parallel testing, if you will. Um, the plasma uh, testing is a, a faster turnaround time. Uh, certainly useful when you have limited tissue, uh, and it does identify the biomarkers um, as adequately as tissue does. Um, if you find something in the blood, you can believe it, you can act on it, and the outcomes with regard to response rate uh, seem to be uh, the same. The NCCN guidelines do recommend it uh, in certain circumstances, medically unfit for an invasive biopsy, insufficient material, uh, or if the tissue-based testing did not cover all of the actionable recommended biomarkers. Um, uh, so we have plenty of validation studies, the Nile trial, the studies out of UPenn, the POPAT uh, trial from the UK, all show that, in my opinion, that this is uh, a valid approach with clinical utility that complements uh, tissue-based testing. So it is part of the everyday practice of oncology at this time. Next slide, please. So one uh, has to take into account uh, choosing the optimal diagnostic approach and, and, and methods. You know, uh, how often are you uh, going to anticipate that you're going to get a diagnosis and get adequate uh, tissue? Um, uh, the invasiveness and risk of the procedure from the patient's point of view, uh, how efficient is it, how uh, easy it is to access and how quick is the turnaround time? Um, is the expertise available uh, with regard to these things? Also many patient-specific factors. Um, you know, the, the, the median age of lung cancer is 70 years. Many people have a history of smoking. Uh, there's often comorbidities. Uh, the anatomy of the tumor may uh, 
be such that the biopsy could be particularly risky? Um, uh, are you going to get an adequate volume of tissue specimen to do everything that you need to do? Um, and is the tumor viable at the proposed biopsy site? And sometimes PET can be helpful from that point of view. And these, these are the things that we, I mean, in, in a perfect world, you would have a multidisciplinary discussion about this. Many of these things we talk about at our weekly tumor board, and we make a decision with the interventional radiologist, the pulmonologist, the thoracic surgeons, that these are the people that go and get tissue for us. <clears throat> and we'd like to do one thing to get all the tissue that we need. Uh, and again, I think it's best done uh, in a multidisciplinary fashion, if possible. Uh, next slide, please. In the why, this comes back to, to the why, and these are a series of waterfall plots in various molecularly defined populations that got targeted therapy. Obviously, you can see the shapes of these waterfall plots are all the same. Uh, the vast majority of patients that have the target and get the targeted therapy have significant tumor reduction, um, and that's the bottom line. Again, the goal here is to get the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. Next slide, please. Again, getting back to who to test, uh, this slide just summarizes uh, um, a bit of what we said on a previous slide, but just kind of updates the most recent uh, 2023 NCCN clinical practice guidelines. Test for all the targets is what the uh, NCCN says. Um, uh, they also note that uh, PDL1 expression is important to assess. Um, remember, PDL1 expression is immunohistochemistry, so the turnaround time is, you know, in the range of 48 to 72 hours. Uh, the molecular testing may take longer. My advice is to ignore the PDL1 result until you know the full molecular panel and make your decision at that point. Do not act on the PDL1 status before you know the mutation or fusion status of, of the patient. The NCCN also, again, mentions uh, liquid biopsy as a testing option uh, in certain clinical situations. The CAP guidelines are shown here. They're a bit uh, uh, more uh, uh, um, historical and from 2018. But again, testing for the targets uh, should be multiplexed. Uh, there are targets beyond EGFR, ALK, and ROS1, as we pointed out. They also say in some clinical settings, liquid biopsy uh, for EGFR testing is is an option if tissue is limited or insufficient. I think that was maybe true in 2018. I think it is unequivocally uh, a standard of care to use liquid biopsy to test for all the targets at this particular point. So um, again, I think it's part of everyday clinical practice in 2023. Uh, next slide, please. So what's new in targeted therapy after frontline uh, treatment of non-small cell? Let's go to the next slide here. Uh, we're going to pick on med the Medexon 14 uh, uh, skipping population here and just show you some data from the uh, Chrysalis Phase 1 trial, uh, not the um, uh, Exxon uh, 20 insertions that it's currently approved for. But remember, um, uh, amivantamab, which is summarized here, is a bispecific antibody inhibiting EGFR as well as MET. Uh, there was a um, uh, cohort in this study looking at the MedExon 14 uh, skipping mutation. Uh, again, this is a different approach than the uh, TKI approach. Uh, patients had to have uh, obviously documented 
MedExon 14, either by NGS or uh, circulating tumor DNA in measurable disease. If we go to the next slide, uh, we see um, the uh, monotherapy with amivantamab in this population uh, had an overall response rate of about 50% if you did not have a prior uh, MET inhibitor, but uh, if you were heavily pretreated uh, with a prior MET inhibitor, the response rate was only uh, 17%. Um, the anti-tumor activity was somewhat durable. Um, you can see uh, that uh, the longest responder out to 76 weeks, that was still ongoing at the time of this um, uh, report. So some evidence of activity either in treatment-naive or uh, previously treated patients. Next slide, please. The safety summary, of course, we know that um, one of the major issues uh, with uh, amivantamab is the infusion-related reaction. This is uh, kind of a day one issue only. After day one, it really uh, decreases in frequency. Uh, the other things such as rash, uh, dermatitis, perinicchia, uh, and uh, peripheral edema, uh, again, these are common side effects. However, most of them are grade one or two. If you could look in the um, either the uh, larger population or the recommended phase two dosing of 425 patients, and then the Medexon 14, skip mutation 55 patients. Uh, again, fairly similar rates of toxicities. And again, from a grade three or higher point of view, most of them are uh, single digits, or in fact, all of them are single digits for the most part um, with regard to uh, uh, high-grade toxicities. Uh, so, um, in, specifically in the MedExon 14 skipping population, uh, there were no uh, new safety signals in that uh, population. Uh, again, in addition to the uh, day one infusion reaction, uh, I'll also point out uh, the risk of ILD of about 4% in the uh, cumulative rash. Um, uh, most patients had rash, but only about 4% had grade three or higher rash. Next slide, please. Again, switching gears to the um, Exxon uh, 20 insertion population, this is the uh, EXCLAIM trial that evaluated mobocertinib. Uh, this is the, the design. There were obviously multiple cohorts. Did include uh, her two exons, uh, also in certain cohorts. Uh, cohort one was the patients with prior platinum. There was an extension cohort shown to the bottom right. Uh, again, these were previously treated patients with EGFR exon 20 uh, mutations, which we know is, a, again, a heterogeneous group of patients uh, in and of itself. Next slide, please. The uh, confirmed response rate was about 28%. So the remarkable thing about the responses is the durability of the response. You can see immediate duration of response of 17.5 months. Um, a median PFS of just over seven months, a median survival of about two years uh, in this study. So um, again, lower response rates, but durable responses. And obviously it begs the question, who is that 28% uh, of patients that are having these very durable responses and what's different about them compared uh, to the patients that, that, that don't enjoy a response? And, and I think that's one of the outstanding questions, which will hopefully have uh, uh, some clarity of data moving forward as we study this very heterogeneous population of exon 20 insertion patients. Uh, next slide, please. 
of course, the uh, major issue we see with mobile sertinib is diarrhea. You can see the rate of grade three treatment-related adverse events about slightly shy of half the patients. Um, uh, about 17% led to discontinuation, about 25% led to dose reduction. Uh, the um, most common AEs leading to discontinuation were GI in nature, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, anorexia, stomatitis, these sorts of things. So um, important to be aware and be prospective about managing the uh, toxicities um, uh, prospectively. Next slide, please. Again, looking, uh, switching gears this time, we're back to our uh, table of uh, the, the 10, 10 big ones here. We're gonna talk about the KRAS G12C uh, population. Next slide, uh, please. We have two approved agents and you can see the dates that they were approved. Um, uh, to the left, sotoracin, to the right, adagracin. You can see the response rates uh, to both of these agents are just uh, south or just north of 40%, 37% for sotoracin, 42.9% uh, for adagracin. The disease control rate, uh, median duration of response, uh, PFS data, and, and the overall survival data are remarkably similar. You see the waterfall plots also uh, are very similar in shape. Next slide, please. Uh, that data that we just uh, showed you from the uh, sotoracid point of view was essentially code break 100. Uh, you can see, I mentioned the response rates there. Uh, we know in the second line setting that docetaxel has uh, remained a uh, suitable standard of care and is accepted by the FDA as a control arm for randomized uh, phase three trials. And the data from code break 100 that we showed you on the previous slide was the basis for code break 200, which essentially compared sotoracib uh, to docetaxel in the second line setting and previously treated KRAS G12C mutated advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Next slide, please. Uh, this is the design. Uh, you can see, again, they had to have at least one prior uh, treatment. It had to be uh, platinum-based chemotherapy and a checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, good performance status, um, uh, randomized between the control arm of docetaxel, which is perfectly appropriate. Uh, there it is given at the uh, FDA-approved dose and schedule, 75 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks. And then sotoracib was the investigational arm given at the standard dose of 960 milligrams uh, orally, uh, daily. Uh, the primary endpoint was uh, progression-free survival. This was assessed by a blinded independent um, a review committee. Uh, if we go to the next slide, uh, it will show you the um, uh, primary endpoint, uh, which again was PFS by the blinded um, uh, radiology group. Uh, you can see this did meet its primary endpoint with a hazard ratio of 0.66. Uh, the 12-month uh, PFS rate was 25% for sotoracid and 10%, so two and a half fold difference compared to docetaxel. Overall survival was a secondary endpoint. It did not show a difference, uh, but again, it was a secondary endpoint uh, in this trial. Next slide, please. Here are the uh, common grade three plus uh, treatment related adverse events with both agents, sotoracid and diarrhea. Um, most commonly with uh, with um, 
sotoracib or elevated liver enzymes in diarrhea and uh, with do docetaxel, as one would expect, it's more of a myelosuppressive neutropenia, neutropenic fever, as well as fatigue. Uh, so very different toxicity profiles of these two agents. Next slide, please. Anagrasib was evaluated in the crystal one. Uh, here is the phase two design. Again, 600 milligrams BID. These were uh, previously treated patients uh, with a platinum-based chemotherapy and PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitor. Again, the primary endpoint uh, was uh, overall response rate uh, in this trial. If we go to the next slide, uh, it will um, show us the uh, progression-free survival to the left of six and a half months and the overall survival to the right. Median survival was 12.6 months. And as I mentioned on one of the introductory slides um, to the KRAS section here, the overall response rate was 43% um, in this um, setting. Uh, next slide, please. The treatment-related adverse events, uh, again, mostly GI-related, but mostly grade one or two, uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, some liver function abnormalities, some creatinine abnormalities. Again, uh, treatment-related adverse events led to discontinuation in 7% of patients, dose reduction in 52%, and dose interruption in um, 61%. Again, most of these uh, were grade one or two. Next slide. Uh, lastly, uh, uh, we're going to focus on HER2 positive. Uh, this is HER2 mutations and, and look at the data with trastuzumab deruxacan. Next slide, please. Here we have the Destiny Lung O2 study design shown here. This was a phase two, uh, two-arm, multi-center randomized, uh, but non-comparative trial. Uh, it was specifically done in HER2 mutated non-small cell lung cancer that it had previous platinum-based chemotherapy, uh, did have measurable disease. Two dose levels of trastuzumab duroxacan were evaluated. Um, the lower dose of 5.4 milligrams per kilogram uh, every three weeks and 6.4 milligrams per kilogram every uh, six weeks. Again, it was not necessarily uh, designed to compare the two, but just to observe the outcomes on both arms. The primary endpoint was overall response rate by blinded review, and you can see the secondary endpoints shown to the bottom left. Next slide, please. Here's the response rate uh, based on the arm, and you can see for the lower dose of 5.4, the confirmed response rate of uh, slightly shy of 54%, and on the higher dose of 43%. Again, it's not meant to compare the two doses, but just to observe what the response rates were since that was the primary endpoint. You can see the um, median duration of response had not been reached on the lower dose, was, was about six months on the higher dose. Uh, this study is, was, at the time of this reporting, was relatively early, but the, the conclusion here was there didn't seem to be advantage, a great advantage for the higher dose. We're not saying the lower dose is better, but the lower dose seems to be an adequate dose, uh, and there didn't seem to be any rationale for using the higher dose. Next slide, please. The safety is shown here, uh, and again, um, like you see with many of these agents, uh, remember, festuzumab deruxtecan is an antibody drug conjugate. The payload is deruxtecan, which has uh, chemotherapy-like or cytotoxic uh, properties, and so you see some uh, myelosuppression with neutropenia, anemia, these sorts of things. 
uh, also some GI toxicity. Again, the vast majority of it is grade one or two, but you do see a little bit, uh, particularly with regard to myelosuppression neutropenia, 15% uh, grade three, 3% uh, grade four, uh, in a little bit of anemia, 10% grade three. Um, otherwise, the toxicity seem to be largely grade one or two. The next slide, please. So that completes what we wanted to review um, uh, from the targeted therapy point of view. I wanted to share a case uh, study with you. Uh, this is actually a, a lady that I've cared for over the past several years. Can we go to the next slide? Now, uh, uh, those of you, uh, we have some audience response questions here. So either uh, set up your laptop or set up your phone so that you can participate in the audience response part of this because uh, we'd like to get as many responses as, uh, as, as possible. For all you Yankee fans out there, here's to you. Perfect game last night, New York Yankees. 82-year-old um, woman, never smoker, presents with a persistent cough. Gets a chest CT, shows a five centimeter right upper lobe mass. She does have ipsilateral mediastinal adenopathy. PET scan shows only intrathoracic disease uh, that we saw on the chest CT. She had a negative brain MRI. Uh, it was felt that her best diagnostic approach was a mediastinoscopy. Uh, that was done. She had multi-station disease in 2R4 and station 7 with adenocarcinoma. Uh, we did do molecular testing, broad-based, and she had a KRAS G12C mutation uh, in this setting. Uh, she didn't have much in the way of medical. She's pretty, pretty robust, 82-year-old. We see a lot of those in Florida. She had been widowed for five years. She had a couple of kids living closely, and she was retired. Uh, she had no family history of cancer. Next slide. So her stage was a T3N2 or stage 3B. She was initially treated with concurrent uh, chemorads, so weekly carbotaxel. Um, did transition to consolidation durvolumab. But about three months into her course of durvolumab, she had a follow-up CT scan that showed multiple new bilateral pulmonary nodules. Next slide, please. So uh, with that, Finding, and of course, I didn't show you the CT, but you can trust me that there were multiple bilateral. What would you do at this time? What would you recommend? Uh, uh, repeat biopsy? Uh, would you do plasma-based uh, next generation? Uh, or would you just assume this is disease progression and then move on to whatever your next line of therapy was? So we'll give people a moment to um, record their, what would you do at this point? And the majority here, repeat biopsy, uh, one uh, plasma-based next-generation testing. Let's, uh, I guess we've allowed enough time. Let's move on to the next slide. Well, we, we did do, the majority wins here. We did do uh, a repeat biopsy. Uh, uh, you can see the repeat biopsy showed adenocarcinoma and it had the same KRAS G12C mutation that she had at the initial time of her diagnosis. So we felt that this, this um, uh, solidified the diagnosis, so solidified that she was now stage four. Um, and we obviously stopped the consolidation immunotherapy. Next slide, please. 
steps. So at this point, what would you now recommend? Um, Platinum-based therapy, platinum-based therapy plus, I guess, a different IO agent. Would you move on to traditional second-line docetaxel, ramucirumab, or sotorastib, uh, or atagrasib? Okay. We've got now an equal split. We got some uptake of sotorastib in this setting. All right. I don't, I, I don't, okay, we can go to the next slide. I, I don't know, as you know, as I was putting together these questions, I don't know that there's necessarily a clearly uh, favorable or correct answer. I could tell you, I'm going to say that my answer was the correct answer, so we'll leave it at that. But at the time, um, you know, she, I considered her first line, um, first line uh, stage four. Um, she had an adenocarcinoma. She had not received pemetrexid-based therapy at this point. I did not see a role for adding any other IO agent at that time since she had progressed uh, on uh, dervolumab, and I did not think she was a candidate for anti-VEGF therapy, largely because of her age. We know that the side effects of bevacizumab do increase. I used to, I tell my trainees, think twice about giving it over the age of 75 and think three times giving it uh, over the age of 80. Um, so uh, I did not opt for the um, use of bevacizumab. So, so we treated her with uh, carbopemetrexin. She got four cycles. She had a response um, and she uh, transitioned to maintenance therapy, which she tolerated pretty well. And that bought her about 11 months uh, without much in the way of toxicity, but follow-up CT scan now shows that the nodules she did have uh, were increasing and she had some new ones. And, and again, at this point, um, she was somewhat symptomatic from the, the chest disease. So if we go to the next slide. So now we've completed almost a year of this. What would you do now? So you see the choices here, docetaxel, ramucirumab, sotorasib, adagrasib, or is there some other, some other um, option that you would choose. Okay, we've got um, a majority of you saying uh, um, the targeted agent, sotorasib, um, uh, in, in a very strong minority, docetaxel, ramucirumab. Let's uh, go to the next slide. So at, at this point, um, I chose sotorasib. Uh, obviously, you know, you're right, docetaxel with or without ramucirumab uh, is an option. I figured at this point she had a target, G12C, KRAS. Uh, we had an agent, sotorasib. Um, and um, uh, that's what we went with. I, I, I felt that the side effect profile in this now woman who was 85 at this point, I think, uh, would favor sotorasib versus uh, docetaxel. Uh, and again, I didn't want to give her bevacizumab in the first-line setting, so I didn't necessarily want to give her ramucirumab in the second-line setting when she was three years older than when I first met her. Um, so she started on sotorasib and had very little or no toxicity in her age group. I was a little worried about the GI aspect of it, but she did well. She 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 confessed every time I saw her that she was taking 
all eight pills every day. She didn't like it, but she said she took them all. Um, minor response on CT scan. I'm not quite sure she would have met resist criteria, but she felt better. So that was what we were aiming for. And she, so far, has been on treatment for 19 months. So I considered that uh, success, and, and um, uh, uh, I haven't seen her in a month or so. So we'll we'll see how things go uh, as we um, as as her disease plays out. So I think that's the end of this particular case. Uh, if we go to the next slide, which I yeah okay. So the key takeaways here. Uh, this is a very heterogeneous disease, molecularly diverse disease. One size does not fit all. It is completely standard of care and necessary to do comprehensive genomic testing. In my opinion, using an NGS-based platform that's DNA and RNA-based so that you find all of these targets. Uh, you should do this as early as possible so that the results are available before you make your first-line treatment decisions. Uh, we do know that when you have a target, if you get a targeted therapy, you optimize the outcome of those patients. And don't forget about the fact that I believe tissue and plasma NGS testing uh, are complementary. And um, uh, there are certain advantages of um, liquid biopsy in terms of turnaround time. Uh, and certainly useful uh, uh, when you don't have adequate tissue or all the, and, uh, all the targets weren't tested for or can be helpful also at the time of disease progression. So next slide. All right, Q&A. Let's, let's do some Q&A. So should I turn it back to the moderator here or should I just go to the, yeah. So we've had a number of questions that have been submitted. So I'll just kind of take them take them one at a time here. First question is, uh, is EGFR overexpression used at all in deciding treatment? I'm, I'm gonna assume that EGFR overexpression is looking at protein expression on the cell surface using immunohistochemistry. Um, it, it, today it's not used routinely in making treatment decisions. You know, there were early studies looking at the uh, anti-EGFR antibodies, cetuximab, um, uh, panituumab, and these sorts of things, looking, was there a role for uh, EGFR IHC? And, and it really never panned out. And so currently it's not, it's not used um, in the uh, decision-making. Now, you know, we do have a number of uh, antibody drug conjugates coming up. Uh, you know, we may see a resurfacing of immunohistochemistry for uh, target identification, um, whether or not they'll be useful biomarkers, uh, only time will tell. Uh, next question, how do you decide between plasma and tissue-based um, testing? And are the results the same? Well, obviously everyone gets a biopsy because we need to know the diagnosis in the, the histology of the uh, patient. So you, uh, uh, everyone gets tissue. Uh, that tissue uh, usually is robust enough to do the testing. However, sometimes it's not. Um, uh, as I mentioned early on, I do plasma and tissue in, in all patients. And the reason I do that is the validation studies, particularly the NIAL trial, uh, which was published uh, several years ago, uh, clearly showed the clinical utility of plasma-based testing at the time of diagnosis, yielding about 20% more 
identifiable genomic alterations than when you just rely on tissue. So again, I work from the position that the best thing, or one of the greatest things we can do as an oncologist is to identify an oncogenic driver uh, because of the activity of these um, targeted therapies. So I do everything possible to try to identify them. And I do think that tissue and blood are um, complementary. Uh, plasma is very useful at the time of disease progression. Uh, so that's what I typically do first, unless I do suspect histologic transformation. Uh, you know, there's a small percentage of small cell transformation. So you have to do a biopsy to, to, um, to uh, identify those patients. Uh, next question is, uh, are you at all concerned about cumulative uh, toxicities or the potential for them when looking at combined modality treatment? Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, the short answer is yes. I, I think we pretty much understand the cumulative toxicities of combined modality treatment. And I'm assuming when you say ask the question combined modality treatment, this is largely in the stage three population where we're giving chemo radiotherapy. Uh, we understand that the primary toxicity there is uh, esophagitis. Uh, esophagitis is a disease in which um, uh, one pound of prevention is worth two pounds of cure. This is something that you should manage aggressively, prospectively with pain meds, esophageal soothants, um, uh, acid-reducing substances, diflucon. A lot of this could be fungal uh, infection, superinfection. Um, and I, I am pretty aggressive at uh, managing it so it doesn't become a major issue. Um, the common toxicities to be aware of, we, I mean, we covered most of these with this. I mean, obviously, there are so many agents that I showed you on that one slide with the 10 approved um, uh, biomarkers and all of these agents. Uh, uh, we, we don't obviously have the time to be aware of this. One should become familiar with all of them if you're going to use these agents. Uh, there's a lot of overlap, um, and it largely has to do with uh, um, uh, GI and liver toxicity, some skin toxicity. Many of them have QTC issues, so you need to be aware of that in the appropriate patient. So, um, And then the question, do toxicities with targeted agents correlate with efficacy? That's an interesting question because we've um, you know, seen historically that, um, you know, uh, in the early studies with first-generation uh, EGFR TKIs, that there was a correlation between overall survival and um, and uh, in rash. Uh, and so if you um, uh, had a rash, you seemed to do better. We also noticed the um, uh, development of hypertension with anti-VEGF uh, treatment seemed to uh, identify patients who who did better with regard to overall survival. Um, so there, there there is some correlation. Uh, I've, we've just published a paper in JAMA Oncology looking at uh, immune-related adverse events, and they clearly, patients who have them seem to do better. Um, so that that's another uh, observation about how toxicities may correlate with, with outcomes. Uh, how does data on microbiome play with targeted therapies? You know, I, 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 I'm not much of an expert on the microbiome, so I can't really address that question. I think it's an interesting question. I think it may be more important for the uh, immuno-oncology drugs and the targeted therapies, but, but I would, I would uh, not accept my answer as the definitive answer. Um, combining targeted therapies in, in, in immune checkpoint inhibitors is is treacherous business. Um, this was first identified when uh, osimertinib 
was attempted to be combined with durvolumab, an anti-PDL1 agent. And that study was stopped early because of an excessively high rate of pneumonitis. Um, and we've also seen some uh, um, we've also seen some um, issues with liver toxicities with the ALK drugs and IO therapy and stuff like this. So I think I think the party line is right now is don't combine them uh, outside of a clinical trial. Uh, many of the TKIs do not play well with IO agents. I wouldn't say that's true of all of them, uh, but until we know the safety. I would not um, uh, uh, co combine them outside of a clinical trial. Uh, racial or ethnic differences, do they affect therapy choice? Um, they, they, uh, we, we, we know that there are disparities. We saw some interesting data, concerning data at ASCO a year or two ago looking at the rate of molecular testing, which was, we know there's gross under-testing in the United States, and there were the African-Americans were less likely to get tested and less likely to get tested via an NGS platform. Um, so I'm not sure in the therapy choice. I think, I think if you find something, I don't know that there's much of a, a racial uh, difference between the therapy choice. I think the issue is in, in the diagnosis of these sorts of things based on race. And we, we know when documented disparities um, uh, in the United States. Uh, what message would you give community oncologists about the treatment of non-small cell with targeted therapies? The message I would get would be would be um, do routinely do comprehensive genomic testing. I, I've heard from a couple of community oncologists who say, I test all the time, but I never find anything. And I say, perfect. The next patient you test is going to have something. Don't give up. Again, many of these are in the 1% to 2% club. But if you add up, particularly in adenocarcinoma, if you add up all those 10 targets, then um, uh, almost half the patients are going to have something that has an FDA-approved targeted therapy. Now, you know, things like KRAS, G12C, EGFR mutations, you're not going to find a ton of RET fusions or NTRAC fusions and these sorts of things, but you'll occasionally find them. The point is, is that when you find them, these targeted therapies can make such a difference. The last patient I treated with a RET fusion, which was probably about four to six months ago, um, uh, was a guy, a very fit guy, just retired, early 60s, was an exercise freak, was in the gym every day, uh, developed stage four ret fusion positive disease. He had a sacral met on his left side such that he could not exercise. I mean, he could not bend over and touch his toes because of the pain and stuff like this. And when I started him on selpercatinib, which is what I did, uh, that pain was gone within a couple of days. That's how dramatic the, the response can be. So all you have to do is see one of these and see the dramatic response. We know that the targeted therapies work relatively quickly if you have one of these driver alterations. Um, and so I think that um, uh, this is the message to community oncologists is continue to test. Don't get testing fatigue. Uh, and if you test Make sure that you know the result, have someone in your office, bird dog the results. Don't let it get shoved into a file somewhere where you might not see it. Uh, we do know that, that not every patient 
with a identified target gets a targeted therapy. There was a very nice poster at ASCO this year, not a very nice poster, a very concerning poster showing a certain percentage of patients with all of these alterations never got the targeted therapy. Um, so it's not enough to test. You have to also act on the result of the test. So, so um, uh, that's, that's the, um, uh, that's the take home message. Keep testing. Um, uh, we've uh, um, one question here in these patients with driver alterations. Why don't we see higher response rates with targeted therapies? Well, in fact, we do see higher response rates. I showed the one slide I showed that showed all the waterfall plots. Um, you don't see those sorts of waterfall plots with um, with uh, chemotherapy or IO therapy. So um, the question may be generated by the fact that, for instance, in the, like with mobocertinib, the response rate was 28%. With the KRAS G12C drugs, the response rates were about 40%. Those are much more, the exon 20s in the KRAS G12C are, are much more difficult to target uh, and to inhibit. Uh, and so that's why I think you see some lower response rates uh, with those. What I'm talking about are the things like the RET fusions, the ROS1 ALK fusions, the EGFR mutations, the sensitizing mutations, uh, the MedExon 14, all of which have response rates well north of 50%. And you just don't see that sort of response rate um, with, um, uh, with chemotherapy. And this is not, these driver populations are generally not the... Um, uh, type of patient that you see with um, uh, that that get much benefit from immunotherapy in this uh, population. Uh, next question: uh, Can you use ctDNA to determine which agent in the class to use? Um, at the time of initial diagnosis, uh, probably <laughs> probably not. Um, there can be some helpfulness of ctDNA at the time of disease progression. For instance, in the, in the ALK space, if you, let's say you start off with electidem, and then you know, three or four years later, the patient progresses, you retest uh, at progression, which I, which I do, and let's say you find an acquired ALK resistance mutation that is resistant to electidem, but may be sensitive to one of the other drugs, like lorlatinib or brigatinib or seritinib. Uh, so that can be helpful. But that's going to be a small minority of, of the uh, patients. Um, and again, one question about do you retest upon progression? Yes, I do. Um, I will admit that it's probably informative only in a minority of patients, uh, but sometimes your patient is in the minority of that and it can be uh, helpful. Again, I think you have to be suspicious if the clinical progression is rapid, that there's histologic transformation. So I would biopsy first um, so you can rule out uh, the transition transformation to small cell lung cancer. Um, so that's it. And then how do you work with a multidisciplinary team in the refractory setting? Uh, not so much in the refractory setting in um, the, you know, multidisciplinary input in the team is incredibly important. We have a weekly tumor board where all the disciplines are there. In fact, we don't start the meeting until all the disciplines are there. And we uh, debate back and forth between the disciplines about various issues in the management of patients. Usually it is at the time of initial diagnosis. Uh, at the time of disease uh, regression or the refractory setting, 
that's usually the land of the um, uh, medical oncologist trying to decide what to do. Now, many times uh, we may want to do a, um, a repeat biopsy. Uh, I will bring the case back to the tumor board and I will ask my colleagues that do these sorts of biopsies, what do we think is the safest and best way to get um, a biopsy and a diagnosis for what I'm looking for. And so that's where the multidisciplinary team in the refractory setting can be, can be, um, uh, can be helpful. So um, uh, that, that's where I would um, uh, bring back the multidisciplinary team uh, in this um, uh, particular case. Uh, shared decision-making is a question here when choosing therapy. Um, I, 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 I use that phrase a lot when I talk to patients. And um, I think uh, even though I use it a lot and I say this is a partnership, at the end of the day, the patient's going to look at you and say, you're the expert. What do you think I should do? Um, and I think that's that's kind of kind of how we end it. And then I, I, I give them my re recommendation, but at least I think we've had this discussion. So we're getting to the end of our time here. Uh, this has been great, at least from my point of view. I've enjoyed the discussion, enjoyed the uh, uh, the uh, audience response questions in the case that I shared with you. I hope that I've impressed upon you that um, this is not your, your father's uh, lung cancer. Uh, I've been a lung cancer doctor for 30 years, and sometimes I sit back and think about how different the management of lung cancer is today than it was in 1993, where we actually debated as to whether or not lung cancer was a treatable disease. It demands comprehensive genomic testing. It's become the poster child for targeted therapies as well as immunotherapy in the first-line setting. We're seeing survival statistics that we've not seen in the past. Uh, when you look at uh, the year 2017, it was the a uh, year that we saw the greatest reduction in cancer mortality in the United States that had ever been reported. And the two diseases that led the way in reduction of cancer mortality were lung cancer and melanoma, historically two difficult diseases to treat. But nowadays, both diseases that are poster children for targeted therapies and immunotherapy. The skill that we need is to get the right patient to uh, the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. So that's what you have to do. And that's the message that I'll leave you with. Thank you very much for joining me today. And I hope this was helpful and useful in your day-to-day -day practice. You've been listening to a replay of a live broadcast titled NSCLC Therapy Management and Biomarker Testing provided by Axis Medical Education and is supported by educational funding provided by Amgen. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.